We are in Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to read, I'm going to read chapters 4 through 6, but it's the, uh, the words in blue that David is going to be unpacking for us this morning. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. All right, so you've probably seen we have a lot of darts around the place. Um, if you don't have anything to do on Friday nights, um, I think they're going to do this like once a month, come on out. It's amazing. If you've lost faith in the next generation, come here on a Friday night. Your, your faith will be restored. The energy these kids had on Friday was crazy. But even more encouraging, some of the mentors we had, um, they were even running, I think, more wild than the kids. So anyway, it was very cool. Um, so appreciate Diane and Nikki and all the work that went into that. So, all right, good to see you all. Um, welcome to those of you joining us online. Of course, you know we're in the middle of this series where we're looking at this letter that Paul writes to the church in Ephesus. It's six chapters long. You can kind of divide it in half. Uh, the first half is all about belief, what we're to believe, and the second half is then our behavior. We see that in orange up there. And as we think about this notion of belief and behavior, we kind of finished up the belief piece before Advent, but we keep reaching back to it because if you think about your lives, you really don't do anything, you don't behave in any way without the belief kind of preceding it. So, for example, if you believe that the party you've been invited to on Friday night is going to be a lot of fun, there'll be a lot of fun people there, you're probably going to accept the invitation and show up. However, if you think that party is going to be a real sleeper, right, you're going to find some other reason, some other excuse to not be there. And that's every aspect of our lives. We truly allow our beliefs to drive our behaviors. That's how we're wired. In fact, if you want to know what it is you truly believe, just check out your behavior. That actually tells you quite a bit. So across America, 63% of Americans profess Christianity as what they believe in. But I wonder how many of them could be convicted in a court of law of actually being a Christian? Is there even enough evidence in their lives? And that's why Paul is urging us to respond and step with our beliefs, everything you see up there in blue. Because when we respond, enabled by the Holy Spirit, we'll become the church that God designed us to be. All that stuff up in orange, that'll be the evidence that we see in our lives. Now, more specifically, if we think back to chapters one through three, there was this one really important truth we learned that was a little striking to people. And that is that before the foundation of the world, God had this cosmic plan. And it was to unite all things in Christ. And if that's truly what we believe, then there should be a response as a church to this belief. And Paul tells us it's gonna manifest itself this way. First of all, the Holy Spirit will convict us in humility. Not so much to think of ourselves less, but to actually spend a lot less time thinking of ourselves. And that's something that we all really need to focus on because when we do that, the fruit of the Spirit begins to bring forth in our life. We start to see things like gentleness, patience, love, and peace, all of which are necessary for the unity to happen inside the church. And so that's so we can carry on our calling to God's master plan to unite all things in Christ. And today, Paul's going to go into great detail to show us the extent 
to which Christians are to be united. As Cammie read for us, we have one body, one spirit, one hope. We have one Lord, one faith, one baptism. We have one God and Father of all. So this emphasis Paul places on this word one clearly puts a premium on unity. And what we're going to find here is that Paul was very intentional about the order. They all align with the Trinity. The first three are all about God the Spirit. The second three are all about God the Son. And the third three are all about God the Father. Paul is teaching us that just as there's unity inside the Trinity, there must also be unity inside the church. So today we're going to look at the first three. One body, one spirit, and one hope. So there is first one body. Now the word body does not refer to a person. It refers to the church. And some of you are like, well, that seems pretty obvious. But it's actually really critical that we grasp this because it gives us a proper perspective. If we're honest with ourselves, our biggest problem in life is us. Our whole lives revolve around ourselves. And Paul has been teaching us this really important truth throughout the entire letter of Ephesians, and that is that we need to get over ourselves. Now when I say that, particularly that that tone, it causes many of us to bristle. But here's the thing, it's actually a biblical truth. Jesus was very clear about his calling to all of us, that we're to deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow him, and we're to do that daily. In other words, we have to stop focusing so much on how it is that we feel each day, how we think others are treating us, or how we believe we're being valued. Our focus must be on something else. It must be on humility, gentleness, patience, love, peace, so that we can be united as the church, Christ's body. That's our calling, each serving as distinct members with special gifts and special talents, playing our unique role, united in Christ, no longer focused on self. Instead, we're all about the business of the kingdom. Now, when you look up at that graphic up there, ask yourself, what is your focus most days? Is it on yourself, or is it on taking up your cross and fulfilling your role in the church? Now, before we go much further, we really need to understand what it is that we mean here when we say this word, church, because there are two churches. First, there's a visible church. Four Mile is a visible church. And while we often refer to a building as the church, that's not what's meant here. It's the people who gather in that building every week. It's you. It's me. It's all the covenant partners that comprise the body called Four Mile Church. So we can actually look around, if we want to see the visible church here, look to your left and look to your right, and you can see the church in the eyes of those around you. But there's a second church, an invisible one, and it is Christ's body. It is the true church, where Jesus is the head and the Holy Spirit unites across generations, races, all denominations, gender, a church that spans nationalities, cultures, gifts, and talents. It's comprised of all those who the Holy Spirit has indwelt whenever they've placed their faith in Jesus. And that goes from Pentecost to today. 
And the invisible church will continue to grow until all of God's children are in it. And at the end of the day, membership in the invisible church is all that matters. And sadly, there are those who are in the visible church who are not among those in the invisible church. They may have repeated a prayer at one point or another. They may have come forward for an altar call, at least at some point in their lives. They may even come to the building every single week, but they haven't really placed their faith in Jesus. There's just no evidence of it in their lives. They're on the church roster. They shine a pew every so often. They throw a few bucks in the box on the way out the door. They attend a potluck dinner or two, but they've never taken up their cross and followed Jesus. They don't display humility, gentleness, patience, love, and peace. They don't repent. They don't forgive. They reject all aspects of unity. They're not playing their role in God's cosmic plan to unite all things in Christ. They aren't praying kingdom prayers every week or actively engaged in the lives of others within the church. Their focus is actually not on God or the church. Their focus is still on themselves. They haven't gotten over themselves. They can't seem to shake it. And to be clear, getting over ourselves does not mean that we no longer matter. It's actually quite the opposite. It means we matter immensely. The truth is, we each play an absolutely vital role in God's cosmic plan, but we can't carry it out until we have gotten over ourselves. When we step back and we consider this truth, especially as Jesus being the head of our church, he demands that all members function in unity. Maybe think of it like an orchestra, and I have a little bit of an experience to share with you. So at West Point, where I just spent the last 20 years, they have this summer concert series that kicks off on Memorial Day and kind of has its finale on Labor Day. And it meets every Sunday night throughout the summer, and it's held at Trophy Point, which is this famous view that you have at West Point. It, it looks straight up the Hudson Valley. Um, you can see the Hudson River right below. It has sweeping views. They're majestic. It's, it's phenomenal. And so it's really cool because in that final, the finale on Labor Day, Everybody tries to come to this thing. The public is welcome. 15,000 people or more show up for this. And it's in this outdoor sort of amphitheater. So if you want to get a good seat, you got to put your blanket down by noon. And then someone's got to sit on that blanket because in the military they have MPs. And those MPs, military police, they're walking around all the time and they'll take your blanket. If someone's not sitting on it, you lose your spot. So you sit there all day long and you trade off between family members and neighbors to make sure that your blanket's still there when the show starts later that evening. But while you're sitting there throughout the day, the musicians, there's hundreds of them, they come up individually throughout the day and they have their little flip-flops on and their shorts and a t-shirt and they grab their little instrument and they're down there tuning it and it sounds dreadful. It's absolutely awful listening to it. And you're sitting there thinking to yourself, do they not know we're sitting here? It's almost like they really can't get over themselves, so to speak, right? They're just down there working on a little instrument. Well, the day goes on and that kind of happens throughout the day. And then in the evening, the crowd sort of assembles, everyone fills their blankets. And the band slowly comes out and takes their seat. They're in their shiny uniforms. The conductor stands up front. He grabs his baton. He turns around, and he lifts it in the air, and this orchestra launches into the 1812 Overture. It's the most magnificent sound you'll ever hear in your entire life. It's phenomenal. 
It makes the hair stand up on the back of your neck. As each unique instrument unites in harmony around the conductor, and they play their best for him. And that's just a glimpse of what the unity of the body will one day look like when we're all assembled, and our Lord and Savior grabs his baton. The whole invisible church united in praise, singing their chords in unison. It's going to be simply awesome. But in the meantime, we serve the visible church in step with our calling to the invisible one, where Jesus is the head, the Holy Spirit unites, and we are completely over ourselves because we serve something so much bigger. We serve something cosmic, Christ and his church. So there is one body and one spirit. So what gives the body life, what enables it to function in unity, is the Holy Spirit. The church's existence is a direct result of the activity of the Holy Spirit. There was no church until Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit was poured out on the disciples. And recall from a few weeks back, the Holy Spirit is not an it, not some force or a cosmic power. No, he is the third person of the Trinity. He is all-knowing, ever-present, and all-powerful. And we simply can't be a member of the invisible church until the Holy Spirit does his work in us. So how is it that the Holy Spirit's power is displayed in our lives? We got to go back to the gospel message. And I know many of you are like, you know, we're getting a little tired of seeing this graphic. He even posted it on the wall up here. Well, here's the thing. We want to burn this graphic into the canvas of your hearts. And that is because this is our testimony. We need to be able to, on a moment's notice, give our testimony. And we should be able to give it in a one-minute burst, in a three-minute burst, and a 10-minute burst. So the one-minute burst, think of yourself in Starbucks, waiting for your coffee. You kind of go through the line. It takes about a minute to get through it, if it's a good Starbucks. Think about the three-minute burst. That's at Subway. They're making your sandwich, and you're kind of moving down the line, and you've got people around you, and you have that opportunity to share your testimony. The 10-minute, that's when you're stuck at Shop and Save, three people back, and someone's got their coupon book out. Good 10 minutes, right? You're going to be there a little while. So you better have a longer testimony to be able to share. And our testimony all begins at the same part, on that wide, dark path that leads to eternal destruction. It's all about the sin in our lives. We must start there, because that's where we all are. We're focused on ourselves. We're living by the world's standards, believing for the most part that we're all basically good people. Well, the very first thing that the Holy Spirit does as he convicts us of that lie. He convicts us of our sinful condition. He shows us the truth that we're separated from our creator by virtue of our sin, and we're headed for eternal destruction. But then, second, he counsels us that there is a way to deal with this sin. There's only one way, and that is to humble ourselves before Almighty God, place our faith in his son Jesus. And when we do, that little red drop of blood up there, and nothing more, it justifies us. It makes us right before a holy God. We're born again into a new life in Christ, and we get this new heart, one where the Holy Spirit indwells us. And then third, the Holy Spirit comforts us as he walks us down that lighted path towards that narrow gate where he sanctifies us, makes us more like Jesus each day, incorporating us into the body of Christ. 
That ongoing cycle of conviction, counseling, and comfort, it unfolds day by day over the rest of our lives as we become more humble, gentle, patient, loving, bearing his fruit, exercising those gifts that he gives us so that we can maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, playing our role, playing our very best for him in God's cosmic plan to unite all things in Christ. Now, there's at least one other significant role that I want to hit on today that the Holy Spirit plays in the life of the church, and that is in this area of revival. Now, there's a sense in which revival occurs in each one of us whenever we place our faith in Jesus and the Holy Spirit sanctifies us. But there's also another sense in which we see the church undergo revival, kind of like we saw at Pentecost. And when you study these periods of the Holy Spirit being poured out on many people at one point in time, there are several things that we find in common. First, they happen suddenly and unexpectedly. They're not a result of anything that man does. Remember, God is always the first mover, and as we've learned, the Holy Spirit, he's the third person of the Trinity, he's God, he's sovereign, so we do not control him. He moves how and when he wants. We cannot schedule a revival. That doesn't happen. I mean, churches do that, but it's not a revival. Revival comes from the Holy Spirit. Second, people are overcome with a sense of God's presence and an intense desire to worship Him. They experience this new clarity of truth in ways they've never known before because it doesn't come from some charismatic person up there talking. It comes directly from the truth of Scripture. And it becomes so absolutely clear that they're able to then convey this truth to other people because it truly has been burned into the canvas of their hearts. Third, their belief or their faith in God grows immeasurably. They become absolutely fearless, completely obsessed with carrying out their commission to go and make disciples. And it's not a strength that they have in and of themselves. It's a strength that works through them by the power of the Holy Spirit. And finally, those impacted by revival, they don't seek their own glory. They've been humbled. They credit all the amazing things that happened during revival to God and to God alone. Now just think about what happened at Pentecost. You got this handful of ragtag disciples. They're terrified about everything, always hiding, scared of everything. They're kind of like not even loyal. They didn't really follow things until suddenly the Holy Spirit comes upon them and then by his power, they become utterly fearless. They don't even bat an eye at the challenges of the religious authorities because they know the truth. They've seen it. They've experienced it. They're burned at the stake. They're stoned. They're crucified upside down. Doesn't matter. They're carrying out their commission from Almighty God to go and make disciples regardless of the cost. They're over themselves. They've denied themselves, taken up their cross, and they follow Jesus. And they're above all united. They're reconciled to Christ and to each other. Just listen to how Dr. Luke describes it. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, 
and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Does that sound a lot like the language we use in the pillars? If you go back and read through that on your own after church here, that's all pillar language. That's what we're talking about. That's what Cammy described to you at the beginning of church. Could you imagine? Could you even begin to imagine what that would be like? I mean, most of us are so focused on taking a really cool vacation or maybe purchasing a bunch of land, or building up our wealth, or building up our status, or making ends meet, whatever it is. But can you imagine if you got an opportunity to be involved in revival? There's nothing like that out there. Nothing compares to that, and that is what we must be praying for. That's what Paul is praying for. So there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call. So why is it that we're called to one body by the one spirit? Well, it's to prepare us for something that has yet to take place, and that is glorification. That is when we are glorified, where we're in God's presence for all eternity, the kingdom of God, enjoying our inheritance as his adopted children. When the Holy Spirit indwells us, we're sealed in him, meaning we're stamped as belonging to God. And so Paul is pointing us to the hope of our inheritance. He wants us to get our heads up, to see what lies ahead. He wants us to look forward to sharing in our eternal, unfathomable inheritance and doing it together. And I know that can be a little daunting because sometimes church people can be just a little frustrating, can't they? I know some of you look to your left and you look to your right and you're like, man, i got to spend all eternity with these clowns. Well, yeah, but they're not going to be like this. They're going to be in Christ's presence, and they're going to be like him, completely transformed, without any sin, and with a new heavenly body. And that is what our hope is in. Now, in my preparation for this sermon, I ran across the position that Martin Lloyd-Jones took that really got me thinking. He said, Paul's teaching here is why we must be ever so careful whenever we give our personal testimony. Now, let me just say, my own personal testimony is a huge encouragement to me because it's an important reminder of the depths of the pit from which I have been retrieved, and I tell of it often, and I put it in the context of that graphic you see up there. But when we share this with others, particularly in a public setting, we got to be really mindful and careful that we don't cast a shadow of doubt on people or cause them to look back in their lives. And we've all probably seen it at some point or another. Someone gives their testimony about how far down that dark, wide path they had gone. And then someone else pops up and says, oh yeah? Well, I spent three years in rehab and six years in prison before that. And then it starts turning into this sort of one-upsmanship about how far down that dark path we have gone. We start looking back. And what does it do for those sitting around listening to it? 
They start to question, well, maybe I wasn't really ever, I never really was redeemed. I never had that conversion experience. And we have to be very mindful because some people have been blessed with not having to go through as many trials as others in order to come to the Lord. The thing is, it really doesn't matter how we get there. Each of us will have our own unique path. The only thing that matters is that we do get there. That's what our focus must be on. So we must be very important, very careful that we don't allow important Christians to sort of rise up. And I see that far too often. We begin to revere those who've had a harder road. We call them special Christians who've really been through the ring in their life. And they start believing it too. And it stifles hope. It leads to division. And sows those seeds of doubt. And that is completely on a step with the Holy Spirit. There are no special Christians. Every Christian is special. That's the way we must think about it. So it really doesn't matter how you get to the kingdom. It only matters that you do. And that is why we're not to look back. We're to look forward in hope for what lies ahead. You know, I think about so many of my spiritual mentors. The one thing they all have in common is their whole outlook on life is radiant with hope. They're looking forward to all that Paul has taught us about every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places about the immeasurable riches of grace which he lavishes upon us, all to the praise of his glory. That is what our hope is in. So be careful with your testimonies. Make sure that they build each other up and they're always pointing to our eternal glory. So there you have it. One body, one spirit, and one hope. The unifying work of the Holy Spirit in Christ's church. And so our response to this teaching today is to receive the sacrament of communion. We're going to do that together, of course, representing this one body that we all belong to. As the writer of Hebrews reminds us, there's never been the forgiveness of sin without the shedding of blood. And under the new covenant, Christ's blood serves as the means to our forgiveness. Before Jesus went to the cross to shed his blood for us, he had a meal with his disciples instituting communion between God and his people for all time. The Apostle Paul encourages us, whenever we receive the elements, to take a little bit of time and examine ourselves. Not for whether we're worthy, because we all know that none of us are worthy, but rather that we've humbled our hearts before our Lord and Savior as one body, one spirit, and focused on that one hope. So let's take a few moments in the quiet of our hearts to confess our sins, to accept his forgiveness, and to recommit ourselves in humble obedience to his service so that we can play our best for him. This is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Father, our sin is ever before us, reminding us of our need for a Savior. You are our God and we are your people, and you sent your Son to die on the cross for our sins, establishing this new covenant that we all live under. Lord, we are not worthy that you should come under our roof but speak the word only, and our souls shall be healed. Amen.